you so much for the visions of your love and your glory that you're giving us. And we pray that you would help us lay fast hold of that anchor within the veil, that we may be safe through whatever storms life brings. And we pray, Father, for your servant Bill, that you would humble his heart, that the glory of your throne may shine through his face, and that he may be your instrument to bring us closer to that glory. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's very rarely that I would start a sermon this way or a presentation, probably shouldn't say a sermon on a, on a uh, Friday morning, But there is one thing that I'm going to give you permission to do when you go back to your homes. And it's something that has really burdened me for the last uh, few weeks. About a month ago, I did a two-part series on parenting and marriage in my churches. It's very rare that I I preach the same sermon in in both churches, but I decided uh, once in a while, I decided once in a while to do that. But I heard some scientists, some uh, uh, researchers uh, on NPR. I don't know if that, uh, for some of you who are conservative New Englanders, NPR may be a dirty, uh, you know, thing. I'm not sure. But I listen to NPR sometimes driving along in my car, and I heard some some scientists uh, talking. This is what they said. They said they have discovered that children who play video games You know any children who play video games? Probably do. So if you're a parent uh, and you have a young child, listen carefully. If you're a grandparent with little children, listen carefully. If you're not an uncle, church member, whatever, I give you permission to share this. They have discovered that children who play video games, young children, that the activity of playing video games retards the development of the frontal lobe. And I know many, many Seventh-day Adventist parents whose kids at the age of five, six, seven, eight are just spending all kinds of time on video games. And so what they're allowing is just the opposite of why God has given them permission to be a parent. And that is to develop the character of the child into Christ-likeness. And this particular activity is working diametrically opposed to that. So it's a warning that I think we need to heed. If you do go back to your church and say it's some, be very gentle. Have tears in your voice when you tell them you've noticed that they're five-year-old or whatever. Or if it's your five-year-old who's crying. I had a lady come to me and say, oh, you know, her six-year-old, oh, he was crying, crying, crying. Right in front of me, crying. What's he crying for? Oh, because he can't get a video game. Because his friends in church have video games. So I don't know if my my crying as I said it during my sermon, hopefully I did, I don't know, um, stimulated any parents to talk with their children and, and to remove it from them in a kind way. Um, hmm. That's got nothing to do with my sermon, by the way, but I don't know, I was just, I just burdened by it. Um, this morning, as we continue, and uh, I want to talk to you about a topic that is, I've entitled, No Man is an Island. Now, you know, if you've been to school, 
If you don't know where that came from, then you should go back to your school and tell them you're turning in your diploma <laughs> because they cheated you. No man is an island. Who is it that coined those words? John Donne. That's right, John Donne. That's a very biblical concept, by the way. No man is an island, island entire of itself. And that is very true. God knows that, but I'm not sure all of us know it as we should. So I want to talk to you about that concept today, no man is an island. Before I do, I, I saw my son, he of the shaved head, uh, somebody spoke to me about 20 minutes ago and said, I know your bill. He looked at me, said, I know your bill. Uh, were you going to say anything, Sean, about the... How many of you had, get New England pastor? All right. Oh, that's quite a few of you. All right, here it is, New England pastor. This is the latest issue. And um, it's put out. The, I, I, I've got to tell you, I, I got a promotion. I got a promotion. If you look here at the, uh, this, this right here, what do you call this? The, not the masthead. Hey, masthead? Yeah, you look. I got a promotion. He was just saying for you to be humble. Yes, that's right. But Sean is the editor, and, and up until just this issue, I was the assistant editor. And now I'm the associate editor. <laughs> but anyway, this comes out bi-monthly. We try to anyway get it out bi-monthly in case we miss, but it's been, what, about three and a half years now? And it's called New England Pastor, and it has, we have folk writing for us, lay people, pastors, seminary teachers, conference presidents, et cetera, et cetera. And if you would like a free, uh, free subscription, see Sean, all right? And uh, you may have that. My favorite word in all the English language is free. I don't know about you, but that attracts me. And so, um, anyway, this, uh, this magazine is, is put up bi-monthly. And Sean was talking about it just a little bit ago that um, he has somebody from uh, Loma Linda, is it? Now, let me share something with you. Speaking of Loma Linda, and that is... Um, you know, the con general conference president, bless his heart, I think he's a man who has been called by God for such a time Amen. as this. Amen. Because what is the very first thing that he did? He issued a call, didn't he, for revival and reformation. Amen. And don't we need that, huh? Amen. Now let me share something with you that I probably wouldn't share in Loma Linda or in Berrien Springs or Washington, D.C., I don't know God near as much as I should. But as I look back and see how God works, I don't expect that that lasting last revival, I don't expect, it may, is going to break out in Loma Linda or Andrews University or even Washington, D.C. If you think of how God has worked historically, it's going to begin with humble people in obscure, removed places. Now, does God want it to happen in Washington, D.C.? Sure. But if, if history is a prelude to the future, then I expect that that lasting, last revival, reformation and repentance, is going to begin in remote places, obscure to the world and even to the church. And people of all levels of this denomination are going to be tested. 
when that particular revival, reformation, repentance breaks out and comes like a tidal wave. So, weld. Why not weld? Why not here? Why not here? Anyway, we're not responsible for the world church, just uh, ourselves, basically, but it can start someplace. Um, I, I want to share a quote with you, and I don't have extensive quotes like my son does, except when you come tonight, I have a lot of quotes. But I just have two when you get your, uh, get your page afterward. No, 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 no. They, they, uh, they'll pay attention if I... If I By the way, uh, imagination is a great thing, isn't it? And that's the other problem with a lot of the gizmos we have today. Everybody's wired, and there's no longer a need for imagination. Those of you who are old enough to remember radio, you sat next to the radio and you listened to all that stuff and you imagined, right? Jesus, Jesus, when he told his parables, played upon people's imaginations, didn't he? And today we've lost that. We're, we're so, such a visual, visual uh, culture. But I want to take, I want to read something to you from, um, listen to this now, listen, listen carefully, because they're going to ask you to repeat it to me. I'm going to say it once you repeat it. This is taken from the sibling uncertainty hypothesis Facial resemblance as a sibling recognition clue. You got it? Oh, okay. You're, you're, you're better than I am. It's taken from a magazine that I hadn't heard of until just a few weeks ago called Personality and Individual Differences. There's a journal that's, that comes out on a regular basis called Personality and Individual Differences. And, and this is the quote that comes from this particular issue. Uh, it says this, are you your brother's keeper? Uh, by the way, this is not a Christian magazine. Only as much as you look like him, according to a new study. Among full biological siblings, facial resemblance was associated with greater emotional closeness and willingness to help one's siblings. Similar-looking siblings also reported less conflict the more time they spent growing up with each other, while dissimilar-looking siblings reported more conflict the more time they spent growing up with each other. You caught that, right? That means that twins should get along pretty well, wouldn't you think? No? Oh. Oh, oh, there goes that theory, huh? That's interesting, though. The more you look like your sibling, the more you are prone to get along with that sibling. Have less conflict. I, I, uh, I, I have two children. I don't want to say who they are. I've got three children, but I, I'm just talking about two of the three. All right? And uh, the two I'm talking about are boys. <laughs> And some people have thought they should have been named Pete and Repeat. I don't know. But I want to tell you something. Sean should write to these people and say, this ain't true. Because I thought they wouldn't be murdering one another every other day up in the bedroom. My goodness. But anyway, um, that's interesting. Sameness. Sameness. Lookalikes. The more compassion you will have for someone who looks like you. That's interesting. By the way, I, I know some parents 
who, um, who would like to think, boy, I need to have a kid that looks just like me. And, uh, well, I know the parent and what they look like. <laughs> and don't wish for that. <laughs> don't wish for that. Don't do it. Don't do it to your child. But uh, it's, it's of interest that, uh, that, that, that science, I think, is catching up with a gospel principle that I want to talk to you about today. Ellen White in 7 BC 904 says this, the humanity of the Son of God is everything Amen. to us. It is the golden leak chain which binds up souls to Christ and through Christ to God. This is to be our study. Amen. Now, I've got to tell you about a little incident that if you read Sean's first book, you might remember it. I was at camp meeting a number of years ago in South Lancaster. Oh, by the way, I, remind me where I am because I'm going to go to something else. I'm going to forget where I was. All right? No. Oh, it was uh, 7, 7 BC 904, I believe. You'll, you'll get a handout. I've only got two quotes. Um, I, 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 this topic I'm about to, ta- to, to share with you is, is a topic that I have never spoken about in any other place in, except my churches for about 12 years. The last time I spoke about it publicly was in a place called, get this now, you'll love this name of this town, Pugwash. <laughs> Have any of you ever heard of Pugwash? Wow! How many of you ever been to Pugwash? All right. So when my son said, you know, this place right here, you can't beat it. There's no better. You know, well, I want to keep, you know, on the good side of all of you northern New Englanders, whom I love very much, but I'll tell you, if you haven't been to Pugwash, you've got to get there. Well, right now, oh, with the leaves and everything. Okay. uh, You know, you said some things and I didn't respond, you know, when you were... uh, But Pugwash, Nova Scotia, where the Maritime Conference of Seventh-day Adventist has its camp, is about as beautiful as you can get. About as beautiful as you can get. So beautiful that we got permission, my sisters and I, to build a cabin on the campground. And we are literally about 30 feet from the cliff that goes down to the ocean. Just a magnificent, magnificent place. And uh, I spoke on this topic about 12 years ago or so. And uh, I was doing a presentation in the mornings on righteousness by faith, and I decided to put this in. And it was a Wednesday morning, I remember specifically. And um, I found out that it didn't go over very well with one of the pastor's wives. And she told one of the poobas about it. And uh, I've never been asked to speak in Pugwash again. That's not a hint. That's not a hint. But I do remember my opening line, and that is, this is not a present that is, that is like, put this in your pipe and smoke it. It's for something for you to contemplate, to think about, and hopefully appreciate. So now, about that same time or whatever, I'm in camp meeting in, in South Lancaster. And it's, a, I think, a Saturday night, and my wife and I, after the main meeting, started heading toward the ABC. And we got close to the, to the Adventist Book Center, and uh, somebody stopped me, started talking, and so Melanie went on by herself. It wasn't more than about 60 to 120 seconds later 
that she came hurrying out and spoke to me. You better get inside because there's two men in there and they're arguing and you can hear it all over the ABC. So I went in and I recognized both of them. They're friends, not real close friends, but they're friends. And sure enough, there they were in the aisle, really almost yelling at one another over this issue of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Neither is right in that occasion, right? Neither one of them is right. And I stepped up. They both knew me. And I said, gentlemen, I, I don't think this is the place for that, and for this. And so they, they stopped. And one man held out his hand to shake the other person. And the other person wouldn't even shake his hand. Turned around and, and left. And unfortunately, this topic has become ugly in the Seventh-day Adventist church. It's very sad. But you know what? That's the devil making it ugly. It's a very beautiful message. Very pertinent. Very heartwarming. Very heartwarming. Um, women. Women have a way of thinking that every baby is beautiful. I've had my wife say to me, isn't that baby beautiful? I look and I say... It's one of the ugliest kids I've ever seen. <laughs> you know, a face that only a mother could love kind of thing. And, 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 but, you know, well, of course, I, I, I tell everybody, I have five grandchildren, and they all looked like me when they were born. <laughs> no hair. So, anyway, um, it's a very beautiful, beautiful topic. One that is so heartwarming, it changed my life. Amen. I went over to the, our, the, where the book sale was going on to see if a book was there that I was going to recommend. Maybe There's a few here, maybe you haven't read it. Uh, and it is A.T. Jones's 1895 Amen. Sermons. Amen. When I first read that about 20 years ago, 25 years ago, my heart just responded. Amen. Oh, wow. I would come home at night, go into my study... And, uh, and start to read, I'd be on my knees just weeping, Amen. weeping. Amen. I saw Jesus more beautifully than I'd ever seen him before. Wow, it was just so fantastic. And um, I, t I cried tears of contrition. I cried tears of joy. I was sobbing, thinking, if my kids hear me, they're going to think, you know, next door, they're trying to sleep. What's dad doing in there sobbing? Has he lost his mind or what? But it was beautiful. And if you haven't read those sermons, I would encourage you to get that book, A.T. Jones. It's not over there, unfortunately. I probably should have recommended it to Kelly to get. Um, A.T. Jones, 1895 Sermons. It's a pretty good-sized book in terms of size. Um, the humanity of Jesus is what? Everything is everything to us. You know, as someone has said, there have been Thousands of men probably who have aspired to be a God, right? But there's only one God who has aspired to be a man. Amen. Mm. Love that. That is why, and again, you may think I'm as paganistic as I possibly could be. And again, if you want to correct me, wait until Sunday. Wait until Sunday. Don't do it on Sabbath. You know, don't do it right after done either. But, but uh, I love Christmas. I love Christmas. And I know all this stuff, you can't prove this, 
But the thought that God became a man just overwhelms me. I contemplate it as often as I can. It just brings me to humbleness and appreciation. God became a man. Holy ground to think of it. But that's the way God is. God wants to get as close to us as he possibly can. That's the good news. That was a buzzword, by the way, a buzz phrase in the early Seventh-day Adventist pioneers for several decades that they loved to talk about a Savior who was not afar off, but near at hand. And that wasn't just simply the second coming of Jesus. That was the kind of God who became a man like unto us. Heartwarming to me, so very heartwarming. We're going to take a few texts. not going to be extensive with you, but I want you to understand the implications of this, all right? Now, is there anybody here who is from the East? Not, not Eastern Maine. Not Eastern Maine. No, no, no. Uh, not even Eastern Canada. Is there anybody here from the Middle East? Anybody here from mm, the Far East? Okay, so maybe I, what I, if you're maybe second, third generation, let me explain something to you. The, the, the Word of God is written, inspired fully by the Holy Spirit, but it is written by an Eastern mind. And you and I are all Western minds. And that becomes a little bit of a problem at times. Because we think, first of all, as a Western mind would think. Western civilization. And that is, we've been influenced by the Greeks and Greek philosophy. And of course, that got the early church into all kinds of heresy, didn't it? The influence of Greek philosophy. Especially, the, 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 uh, what do you call it, the state of man. And uh, we think, first of all, individually. That's our heritage from Greece. It's not bad. But the Eastern mind, first of all, thinks corporately. And some people, that's a very bad word. But this Bible is written, for the most part, by Jews. Correct? And we call it the Middle what? Middle East. So it's, it's written by an Eastern mind. And that Eastern mind thinks corporately first, just as God thinks corporately at first. Okay? And by the way, that's why this, this, to me, this little thing that's heretical infiltrates some parts of Christianity, including the Seventh-day Adventist Church, that there was a time when God was all alone. That Jesus is a created being, the Holy Spirit, you know, is not really a, doesn't have a personality. That's because people do not understand the corporate mind, the corporate concept. So here, here's, I'm going to give you three texts that are classic examples of what I, what I mean, all right? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Ah, okay. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I've got to hurry along here because I think there's something else coming up in the next little bit. Okay, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is what? One. Is one. That's right. One Lord. One. He is one. Now, Jews to this very day continue to, to proclaim that. And, and 
they're not talking about the fact that there's only one God, as it were. Not at all. But I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 2, and you see something here that is of, of the same thing. That's why God created a man and a woman. You have it, Genesis 2? Moses writes, verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be what? One flesh. That's right. And so we know that, for example, that, that Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 talks, doesn't he, about this relationship between husband and wife as one with Jesus and his what? Bride or his church as one. Look in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Beginning in verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked with the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and all the coast thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy or Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah there was a voice heard, lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel, who? Rachel. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. That's a corporate concept, Rachel. Rachel wasn't really there in Bethlehem when, when Herod did what he did, right? But corporately, it was as Rachel was doing it. So corporateness is a very, very important concept in the scriptures because it's what God is all about. And it's how God deals with you and me. And it's something that, that is important for us to really understand and experience because to me, it takes away a whole lot of problems that we have in churches today. Our problem is, is that we think individually. My son was talking about church boards. That's true, church board. It can tr be true of the last person in the pew who comes maybe once a month. We think, first of all, individually, rather than corporately. Sometimes we have a difficult time understanding when we hear somebody in the Middle East or Far East who's, who's uh, maybe their daughter or their sister does something that causes immorality to be, you know, revealed. And so what does the family do sometime to that girl? They kill her. And we say, whoa, how in the world? Now, of course, you never want to do that. I'm not, I'm not justifying that. But the reason that is happening, and I'm not saying it's right in terms of its outcome, but the reason it happens is because that family thinks corporately first of all. And that daughter, that sister, the sibling, has brought, has brought ill repute upon the entire family, has brought a scandal. And so God is very burdened that you and I understand the corporate concept and the fact that Jesus became a man. Now, evangelicals, bless their hearts, we praise them, you know, preaching this, preaching that, teaching this, teaching that. But evangelicals, I notice, love to talk about the majesty and the sovereignty of God more than they are talking about the humility 
of God. And what attracts me to God is not his all power that he can create the universe, which he's done, but what attracts me to God is his humbleness. There's where the power is. And you read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, and that's what it all is, right? Seven steps of humbleness. That's what agape, that's what love is all about. It's about humbleness, submitting yourself. And oh, I tell you, it is so heartwarming. So let's take a look here at the humanity of Jesus. Let's, let's go to Romans chapter 1. Again, this, you know, we could go on for two or three hours here, for sure, and looking at a lot of different texts. I'm not trying to prove anything as much as I'm trying to help you see the implications of it. Romans chapter 1, verse, beginning in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be a what? An apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of what? Of David, according to the what? According to the flesh. Now, when Paul writes about the flesh, what is he talking about? He's not talking about just flesh like this, right? He's talking about your human nature. The flesh. Flesh and blood shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Not talking here about flesh and blood. It's talking about what? Sinful human nature. Our nature. So Jesus was born of the seed of David. And David was a man after God's own heart, by the way, wasn't he? But he had temptations and sometimes he fell like many people do. So let's go to Hebrews, because Hebrews is really, there's three or four verses in Hebrews that I want to draw your attention to. Hebrews, first of all, chapter 2. I can see that I'm overdressed here for this. I maybe should stand over this end. All right. You have Hebrews chapter 2? I love this verse. Verse 14. Inasmuch, for as much, then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, what's that talking about? Talking about human nature. Human nature as it is today. He also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him, that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now there's an emphasis here, and by the way, I heard someone say, well, the Greek doesn't read that way. Yes, it does. It says here, it's emphatic, that's what he's trying to establish, that just as we are, so Jesus became. He wanted to get as close to us as he possibly can. Because when you love somebody, you want to be close to them, right? And when you don't love somebody, you want to be as far away from them as you possibly can. But Jesus was thinking corporately, and he came, he came as close to us as he possibly could, yet without sin. It says here, he also himself likewise took part of the what? Of the same. Sameness. Likeness. Verses 17 and 18. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren. I, I don't know how much more straightforward you can become. Wherefore in all things it became him to be made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. So here we see that Jesus came, and what did, what did Jacob see in his dream? He saw a what? A ladder. 
And that ladder extended from where to where? From heaven to where? To earth. It wasn't like a fire escape, you know, that hangs up there and you've got to jump up. Some fire escapes are like you've got to jump up to pull it down. That ladder, which represented Jesus Christ, came all the way down to what? Earth. Jesus took on humanity. Humanity comes from what? Humility. It comes from the Latin word that indicates humility. He was willing to become dust of the earth. Amen. Dust of the earth. You can't get any lower than that. But he wanted to be with you and me. Because he came to redeem sinful human nature, sinful human flesh. And so he took upon himself our nature as we are. In fact, I want to share with you that Jesus became me. He became me. He became you. He became us. And it is us that he redeemed. Now, I go on to uh, the next verse. For in that he himself both suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. Now go to Hebrews chapter 4, and we come to this other very well-known passage, beginning in verse 14. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our what? Infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly. How do we come? Boldly, confidently, under the throne of what? Grace. grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in what? Time of need. This is being recorded, is it? Okay. No, I'm not worried about somebody general conference hearing it or something like that. But uh, once in a while, I tell my guy at church to turn off the whatever, and they leave a gap there. Uh, because I want to tell you a story, and um, you don't know the person, you don't know the person's involved, uh, but I suppose when this is dispersed to the millions and millions of people, <laughs> that the person may hear it, that I don't really want to hear it. But... I have an increasing number of individuals who are not members of my particular congregation call me. And not long ago, I had a, I had a pastor of another Seventh-day Adventist church in the Boston community call me and said, I've got a problem in, in a particular situation. Could you talk to so-and-so? And he uh, described for me the little, it wasn't a little problem, it was a big problem. But anyway, I said, okay, well, uh, I'll be glad to get together with the individual. That individual is symptomatic of an increasing problem we have within Seventh-day Adventism. And that is the case, that is the problem of adultery. It's become rampant. Terrible. The hardest thing for me as a pastor is to sit and watch a woman cry just breaks me up, breaks me up. And usually, it's the women who come to me 
and talk to me about the infidelity of their husbands rather than vice versa. But I share with you that it's becoming more and more rampant. There is, it's becoming more and more rampant that our young people are involved in premarital sex. And I want to share with you why I believe that is happening. Because we do not have, we're not, we're not introducing our church members to a gospel that can save unto the uttermost. And because we are not presenting a Christ who's not afar off, but nigh at hand. Let me give you a prime example of what I mean. So one day I was uh, counseling a young lady. Her husband was nearby, but not in the same room. And I said to her, "Uh, let me ask you a question. Do you think that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are? Yeah. Was he tempted to steal? Mm, yeah, I guess so. And you know, you know what's coming, right? So I get to the seventh commandment and I said to her, do you think Jesus was tempted toward immorality, adulterous condition, sex outside of marriage? She thought for a moment, this is a lady now, not just some 16-year-old, but a lady who was not a kid. No. And I would suggest that if you ask that to many, many Seventh-day Adventists today, they would say the same thing. Yes, Jesus was tempted this way, that way, blah, blah, blah. But he wasn't tempted to commit adultery. He wasn't, he wasn't tempted to entertain immoral thoughts. Well... That kind of Jesus can't help somebody when the temptation comes of the flesh. It can't. It's impossible. And because we have failed to, to really present a Jesus who is near a hand and not a far off, we are reaping an enormous bitter harvest in the church. This is not just some legalistic thing about, well, you know, you got this view and you got that view, and let's stay away from it because it's ugly. It gets everybody fighting in Sabbath school. And it does, by the way, and that's the worst thing that can happen. But you know what? Jesus became me. He became you. And he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So that he could bestow his righteousness to you and to me. We have a tremendous battle going on within the church as within Christianity as a whole. I got my glasses in here, sorry. Um, with pornography. With pornography. And um, the answer, the answer is not blowing in the wind. It's here in God's word. In a beautiful, wonderful gospel that shows a Jesus who humbled himself and was desperate to become just like us so that he could save us. What does it say in Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8. You have it say amen? Amen. And so we read here the Apostle Paul 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the life of for the law of the Spirit of life in Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Amen? Amen. That's what has happened. The indicative, the indicative, the indicative. The indicative always comes before the imperative, right? Is that right? The indicative. How many of you know what the indicative is? All right, now here's another reason to take back your diploma to your high school. The indicative always comes before the imperative, and that is true in child rearing, doesn't it? A child needs to understand that he or she is what? Loved. Before they can have the motivation and the power to do what you ask them to do. Not just children, we do too. Every single one of us need to have that. The indicative. The Ten Commandments were given after they came out of slavery, right? Wouldn't have done God any good, wouldn't have done them any good if God had given them Ten Commandments while they were in slavery because they were slaves. They couldn't keep the Ten Commandments and that's why the Ten Commandments actually start off with what? I am the Lord thy God, which what? Brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You are now free, and I promise you, this is the way you will live. I promise you. Those are ten promises, right? In every command, there's a promise. When Jesus told the woman caught in adultery, neither do I, what? Condemn thee, go and sin no more. The power was in the command. The promise was in the command. And so we've been freed from that law of sin and death. And glory, hallelujah. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness, not unlikeness, like somebody tried to teach me one time when I was sitting in a class. The likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be what? Fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Amen. What did Jesus do? He came in my nature, in my human nature, just as I am. And what did he do? He didn't contem- condemn me, but he condemned what? Sin. sin. He did condemn sin. Glory. Hallelujah. So that now that law can be fulfilled in us, that law of righteousness. That's the good news. And let me share with you something else that young people need to know and we need to know. Go to Galatians chapter 5. How many of you are studying Galatians in Sabbath school in your church? I would imagine if you go to church on Seventh-day Adventist Church, you're studying that. Boy, I don't think that was just a coincidence. Do you? Man, alive. Galatians brings revival. Galatians chapter 5, when rightly understood. Um, I'm not sure if I can... I may have something missing. I got an old Bible here that uh, I preach from, and uh, my parents gave it to me when I graduated from uh, academy in 1900, and, and uh, so <clears throat> it's, it's kind of a thing. Okay, uh, it's, it's you know, a memento, and I kind of like to preach from it, King James. So uh, verses uh, 16 and 17, uh, it says, and I have trouble here because my thing, so somebody read it for me from whatever version you want to. Read, I, I, somebody read it. It wasn't, oh, I'm sorry. You would. 
it wasn't until I really began to understand the message of Christ our righteousness that I saw that that wasn't a message of defeat. It was a message of victory. Amen. And that's good news. If, if, if the good news, if the gospel is not strong enough to keep us from falling, what's good about it? What's good about it? It's depressing. And that's the good news that God has given to his remnant church to understand that this is telling us that the spirit, when we're walking in the spirit of God, that the, the good news is so good, it can. Where sin abounds what? Grace, Grace doth much more abound. That's just not for past, it's for the present. Amen. That's the good news. There is victory in Jesus Christ. It's true. It is absolutely true. Now, what are the implications of this? Well... You know, uh, Maytar, my, my new friend here from my home church in Moncton, New Brunswick, is, uh, said something last evening. Was it over there or was it here? It was over there. That we should have a passion for Jesus and a compassion Amen. for others. Absolutely. That's beautiful, isn't it? Amen. A passion for Jesus, but compassion for others. Why is it that Jesus was so compassionate. Is it because he, he was God and God's compassionate? Why was he so compassionate with people? Why was it that, that he was not like the scribes and Pharisees who wanted to stay as far away from people, didn't even want those sinners, their shadow to cross them, to fall on them? Why was it he, he wasn't like that? Why was Jesus so pitiful and tender-hearted and compassionate Exactly. He identified himself with us. He knew the woman caught in adultery. He knew all of those people who were the reprobates in the eyes of the righteous, the so-called righteous, that he could do the same thing they had done. Isn't that true? Apart from the sustaining power of his heavenly Father, he was capable of doing the very same thing. He identified with them because he had become them. And do you know, friends, I believe that this beautiful teaching of God with us, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, that he became a man, and he is so in love with us, he is going to be a man forever and ever and ever. Amen. That's fantastic. That, 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 that relationship, that position he had in heaven, he gave it up forever for you and for me. What a God. Amen. What a God. God is good what? All the time. And all the time? Good. Yes, yes. You're all going to be from the islands pretty soon. And I don't mean Prince Edward Island, by the way. Ah, oh, wow. That's what is needed in our churches. Compassion. Uh, to consider somebody innocent until they're proven what? Amen. Guilty. Amen. It's more than just not pointing a finger at them because you're pointing back at yourself. No, it's identifying with them. Amen. You know, um, I don't know how many of you read Elder Wilson, Ted Wilson. I mentioned to you before, I think he's come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I really do. He, he wrote something that was on the Adventist News Network a few a few weeks ago, I think, called um, Corp Corporate Identity. Did anybody here read it? You, you, you need to go to the Adventist News Network and read it. 
corporate identity. I said, wait a minute, I've never heard a general conference president in all my lifetime. And as I told you, I am not young. I graduated from 1960, you know, so I'm an old man. But I, I, I've seen a lot of conference, general conference presidents come and go. But I never have heard anyone until Elder Wilson or read anyone who talked anything about corporateness. Interesting. Maybe it's because he served time in the Middle East that, his, that it's very much a part of his you know, mentality. I would encourage you to go read it. I should have brought a copy or had a copy. Of Corporate identity. He's getting it. Maybe he's got it long before I ever got it. But friends, the nature of Christ, Christ becoming a man is everything to us. Amen. He became one with us so that we could be one with him forever and ever and ever. And I think it would solve, that beautiful concept would solve so many problems that are in the church. The judgmentalism would disappear because I am that person. That person is me. That's really, in a sense. So when Jesus died... Is it just a figment of my imagination, or did Paul tell us something about that? My last text, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And any preacher who couldn't preach a hundred sermons on this one text, wow. Well, Rick, even 200 sermons. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ, verse 14 constraineth us, it motivates us, it compels us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, is that true? Then we're all what? So if I am in Christ, if Christ is me, I'm in Christ, don't take this too far now, mystically, but if I am in Jesus, if he is me, then when Jesus died, according to what we just read there, when Jesus died the second death on Calvary's cross, who else died? That's right. Amen. The Bible says that a dog can return to its what? Vomit. To think now that you and I died at Calvary's cross in Christ. He died as us. He died as me. He died as you. Why would we ever be lost? Why would we ever want to suffer? Why would we turn away and go back to, to what we were and thus suffer the second death? It's unbelievable. That's un- unbelieving, right? It's unbelieving. It is actually, the Bible has an expression for that kind of person, and it's called a fool. <laughs> called a fool. The good news is that Jesus became us. Amen. And he died as us. And thus we all died at Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago because he became a man like you and me, except without sin. Amen. Because he delights to live with us. It's an apocryphal story, perhaps, and probably today the individual individuals involved would uh, be um, thrown in the slammer. But many years ago, maybe you heard this story of this couple who uh, had a young boy and he didn't always obey his parents, and so they tried to work with him and, and finally... Um, they said to him, Jimmy, the next time that you do this particular thing, we're going to have to have you sleep up in the attic. Well, sure enough, Jimmy 
did what he wasn't supposed to do, and finally his parents said, Jimmy, tonight you're sleeping in the attic. And so it was very difficult for the parents to, uh, to, to, to do that kind of disciplining, but they made a little bed up there and they put Jimmy up in the attic, removed from everybody else. And uh, about two o'clock in the morning, Jimmy's mother rolled over and noticed that her husband wasn't in bed with her. You know where he was. Didn't bring Jimmy down from the attic. He went up with him and was sleeping there right next to him. God came down in human flesh to reveal the wonderful love, the wonderful agape of our Heavenly Father. May it motivate us to live for him and to recognize that we're all made of the same dough. To have compassion on one another. To identify. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your wonderful, wonderful love for us. Oh, Father, we, we bow we are like Peter in that boat as we enter in to a closeness to that glory. We say, O oh Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But at the same time, we cling to your feet. O oh God, by your grace, May we have that kind of compassion toward others. Identify with them. Because it's, it's so needful, Lord. You're trying to bring us into oneness with you and oneness with each other. May married couples understand this. When something happens in that marriage that brings disarray, may corporate identity, may it be part of their understanding. Because reconciliation can happen. Amen. It can happen. Amen. May young people, may our teenagers who are bombarded with so much, they are young adults, may they see a Jesus who's not afar off but nigh at hand and see the beauty of that truth. Yes. And to know that in Christ, indeed, there is victory that is given to them. Amen. There's nothing but good news in this, Lord. Nothing but good news. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord.